Before we start today's show, I could really use your help with something. As you know, Master Brewers is an association run by some of the hardest working folks in the brewing industry. They all have jobs, but also serve the association as volunteers in lots of different ways. I need your help filling a volunteer role that, in my opinion, is one of the simplest but most important jobs. It's super easy, doesn't take much time at all, but is critical to the value of membership and to this podcast. If you're willing to help me out and give back to this incredible association, please take a minute to go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group to learn more. This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. Beer yeast that are now used in the U.S. are not, we're not native to the U.S., so they're not isolated from the wild and then, then used for brewing. They were actually imported by, uh, by English settlers. This week on the show, the yeasts of tomorrow from one of the most advanced yeast labs in the world. Uh, hi, my name is uh, Stan Mertens. I'm uh, working in, at the University of Leuven, um, doing my PhD, but also am the master brewer of our pilot brewery. Hi, my name is Jan Steensels. I'm a postdoc in uh, the lab of Kevin Verstrepen, and I'm uh, managing the industrial context that we have. I want to start off with a question, why does beer taste so good, and what does the brain of a fruit fly have to do with the answer? Um, should I take it? Yeah. So, uh, it's an interesting question, right? Um, brewers are using yeast already for thousands of years to, uh, uh, well, they, don't, they didn't know it yet, but they use it to, to flavor their beer, to make alcohol, but also uh, yeast is one of the main reasons why beer tastes so good. Uh, so it produces, besides alcohol and um, CO2, a lot of these other metabolites, secondary metabolites, which contribute to the flavor of beer. You can think of, for instance, isomyl acetate, which is the best known one, uh, which really 
contributes to the, the, the fruitiness of a beer, uh, like the banana flavor. Um, interesting enough, so yeast produced this compound, and the, the compound is exactly the same compound that a banana it makes a banana smell like a banana, basically. Um, so we were intrigued. Why would yeast do this? Is it just to please the brewers, um, or is there another reason? And that basically kicked off the whole uh, research into why uh, yeast produces these aroma compounds. Um, going through that research, we then found out that in the wild, yeast also produces this, and it could be a way to uh, basically attract insects to its location. Um, and there's a whole story behind it. And basically, um, so yeast doesn't have legs uh, or, or can't move by himself. So when it's growing, for instance, on grapes, uh, it can use the, the sugars in the grapes, uh, can, can ferment these uh, sugars, lives very happy. But then when he runs out of nutrients and sugars, he has to move from one place to another. Um, and because he can't do it himself, he needs to attract something uh, to move from one position to the other. And that uh, could be by uh, attracting insects. And then we basically, in this paper that we published a couple of years ago, showed that indeed these fruity aroma compounds that yeast produces attracts insects. Um, and so they really, we, we showed that, that indeed a yeast that produces a lot of these uh, compounds get attracted more than a yeast that doesn't do, uh, sorry, that attracts more uh, insects than a yeast that doesn't produce these uh, compounds. And it also really that the insects react to these compounds and really are attracted to it. So what inspired that work? Who made the connection between fruit flies and yeast? <laughs> yeah, so um, basically the project was, was started uh, by my professor, Kevin Verstrepen, uh, a while back, a while ago, during his, his own PhD. Um, so he was looking into specific genes in yeast that, that make a yeast produce these aroma compounds. And um, the interesting thing was he, he made some strains that didn't produce these compounds anymore and strains that produced a lot of these compounds. Um, he was doing testing in the lab. Uh, it was Friday afternoon. Um, and instead of cleaning up his bench, he just left it and went off to drink a beer because the weather was nice. Um, and uh, when he came back uh, on Monday in the lab, he saw that some of his uh, bottles with his yeast had a lot of fruit flies in it because next door there was a fruit uh, lab working with fruit flies. And um, some bottles so had a lot of these uh, flies, some didn't. And uh, it, it was the case that the one that didn't produce these fruity compounds didn't have any flies, whereas the one that produced a lot of these aroma compounds was infested with fruit flies. And that sparked the whole project, basically. So, okay, it seems that these flies are attracted to it. And then we start digging into uh, the why and how. And did that lab next door, are they the ones that helped you kind of look into the brain of a fruit fly, or how did that work? Um, so that was a, quite some, some time uh, later. Uh, so we worked with, with specialized other labs uh, who really study fruit flies uh, and are able to, to make these, really look into the, the brains, let's say, of fruit flies and, and look to neural responses. So that was another lab. Your lab does things with yeast that most brewers probably don't even realize are possible. Could you give listeners some background about your lab? Where is it and what happens there? So um, we're a lab at the University of Leuven. So we're uh, situated in Belgium. Um, our, our lab is uh, led by Professor Kevin Verstrepen. 
Um, we only work with yeast uh, in our lab, and we basically have two topics that we tackle. So we do a lot of fundamental research where we use yeast as a model organism to study uh, eukaryotic diseases. I'm uh, just thinking about the Huntington disease, cancer, and all that stuff. But on the other side, we're also uh, doing a lot of uh, more applied research where we um, use yeast, basically. Uh, no, sorry, not really use yeast, but um, let's say that we, we, we look into the fermentation capacity of yeast and that we look at applications as winemaking, uh, sake production, but of course, a lot of uh, beer research that we do here. Um, and there we always try to make or the process more efficient, so faster fermentation, uh, high gravity and so on. Or we try to diversify the end product by uh, having other aromas produced by the yeast. One of the areas your lab focuses on is exploring the natural diversity of yeast. Tell us more about that. So um, the interesting part about our lab is that we have a very broad uh, yeast collection. It's an historical collection that we inherited from uh, the university. And it comprises of thousands of different yeasts coming from different industries from all over the world. So we have, a lot, of course, a lot of brewing yeast, but also sake yeast, uh, yeast that is used in, in winemaking and so on and so forth. Um, and what we do is we, uh, first of all, try to phenotype them as good as possible. So we try to characterize and see how well they behave in different uh, fermentations, uh, which aroma compounds they make, and so on and so forth, just naturally out there in these. Um, and we also uh, look into the, to their genome, and we, we look into how well they are related to each other. So which yeast are nephews or nieces or are even closer related. Um, and there is a lot of information uh, that makes our lab special because we're a lab, one of the few labs with such a yeast collection. And that is that diverse, but also so well characterized. So just looking at what is out there already in nature allows us to already select some interesting strains that brewers might not know of uh, for their application. Your lab does so much screening that it has to use a robot. Tell us about that. Indeed. So, um, we're very happy because we have a very, uh, well, we have a lot of robotics, but one of, his, one of our robots is uh, the plating robot from Singer, uh, which basically allows us to handle about 100 strains in parallel, uh, whereas we used to use a lot of thesis students to do this. All the pipetting stuff is now, now happens basically with robotics. So you can screen easily 100 different strains for 20 and more uh, phenotypes in one go, in one experiment. That's amazing. Do you want to talk about some of the biodiversity of brewer's yeast that you've managed to observe and characterize? So this is maybe really a question for Jan because that was, uh, well, he was one of the main uh, authors on that publication. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, so like I said, we, we really looked into the genomes of uh, the different beer yeast. And often when people do or did genome analyses of yeast, they often neglected the beer yeast for a simple reason, because they're extremely complex. So normal yeast have a relatively simple genome, something that we call diploid, so two copies of each chromosome, while for beer yeast, it's, it's much more messy. They, they often have three or four copies of each chromosome, and a lot of aneuploidies, meaning that they're missing or having, having duplicated uh, chromosomes. So, so there wasn't a lot known about the genomics of, of beer yeast. So what we did, we sequenced uh, a bit over 100 beer yeast, I think, and our, our 
uh, we, we saw several things, but I guess the main conclusion was that we can separate the current biodiversity of beer yeast in two distinct groups, uh, which we call the beer one and beer two group, are not very imaginative. But um, we see that there are two sort of archetypes of, uh, of, uh, of beer yeast. And interestingly, one of the two beer groups, the, the biggest one, the beer one group, you can also subdivide them in uh, uh, geographically. So you have a, a clade that is um, really specific for Belgian and German yeast. So more Western Europe. We have a UK clade, so with all, all yeast from the, from the UK. And stemming from this UK clade, we also have a clade uh, of the beer yeast of the US. So, so we were able to show by looking into the genomes that, that that was one of the outcomes of the paper, that the yeast, the beer yeast that are now used in the US are not, were not native to the US, so they're not isolated from the wild and then, then used for brewing. They were actually imported by, uh, by English settlers around the time that, uh, that, that, they, that they got there. So um, using this genomic information, we could sort of tie it back to, to some historical facts and tell a bit of history about the uh, diversity of beer yeast that we see today. And that family tree that you, you've published is, is very interesting. It's an it's a incredible visual. Where can folks go to find that? Aha. Uh-huh. Um, so we published this in a, in a 2016 uh, paper in the, journal, in the journal called Cell, and we made the paper open access so that anyone can access it. If you just or if you go to the lab website, you can easily uh, you can easily find it there as well. Coming up, but on a genetic level, what we're doing in our lab is basically crossing humans with chickens. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. Support for this episode comes from BSG. Did you know that BSG sources hops directly from growers? and processes them in their FSSC certified facility in the Yakima Valley. From Azaka to Zappa, BSG's hops are pelletized for optimal dispersion in the boiler or FV and packaged in nitrogen flush bags to preserve all those tasty aromatics. To learn more about how your hops go from farmer to fermenter, get in touch with BSG at letstalkhops at bsgcraft.com. Are you looking to improve yield, quality, and sustainability in your cellar? 
Alpha Laval has over 60 years of brewing experience, offering centrifuges, dealkalization systems, yeast plants, and complete cold block cellar projects designed for the most gentle and efficient treatment of your beer, cider, hard seltzer, or other beverages. But the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your greatest production and sustainability goals. Visit alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. Thank you to Brewing with Enzymes by Novazymes. For commercial brewers, enzymes can ease filtration, eliminate diacetyl rest, meet attenuation targets, and optimize your raw materials to save on labor. If you're curious to learn more, head over to brewingwithenzymes.com and get 50% off with your first order using discount code MBAA. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Milwaukee meets at Tumbled Rock Brewery and Kitchen May 19th. District Northwest meets May 20th and 21st in beautiful Hood River. District Philly meets at Other Half Brewing May 20th. District Eastern Canada meets in Montreal May 24th. Don't miss the Master Brewers webinar, How Will Climate Change Affect the Brewing Industry? May 31st. District St. Louis meets at Urban Chestnut Midtown June 2nd. The 2022 Brewing Summit that's the combined meeting with Master Brewers and ASBC, is August 14th through the 16th in Rhode Island. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. And sometimes, um, sometimes you you found strains from other industries or applications that ended up working well for beer too, right? Yep, that's true. That's true. Because I mean, the the, the thing about beer yeast is that um, a lot of brewers are very attached to their yeast. I mean, they have it for for generations, for for centuries, sometimes even, and they really build their whole process around that particular yeast. And yeast might not be optimal yet, and they really might need to have suboptimal solutions in their process design in order to make the yeast work. But if you would go a bit broader and look into to different yeasts and not necessarily yeasts that are now used in, in beer production, you, would, you, you, can, you can easily find strains that do as well or, or even a bit better than the yeasts that are around now. And this is especially true for sort of new processes, for example, uh, high-gravity brewing in which you need to reach very high ethanol concentrations uh, continuous beer fermentations or, or, or um, uh, fermentation or beer fermentation, which you want to reach very high uh, aroma levels and, and so on. So for these very specific applications, uh, there are most definitely yeast out there which might be better than the than the current yeast that are being used. But yeah, brewers are are very uh, reluctant, are often very reluctant to change their yeast because they're so used to it. Stan, you you have some interesting observations regarding the domestication of beer yeast versus wine yeast. Talk about that. Yeah, so um, interesting are indeed some, some characteristics that, that beer yeast retained in their genome, whereas wine yeast don't have it anymore. Um, there are definitely differences there. So, for instance, one of the major things we saw is that the um, wine yeast are often not able to use maltotriose and maltose which are the main carbon sources or sugars in the brewer's world, whereas beer yeast obviously can use these sugars. So if you would use those wine yeasts, which can't use these sugars, for beer brewing, you will have less ethanol, more rest sugars, you get a very sweet beer. 
Um, another thing that it was very striking is that, um, and that's very specific for the beer yeast, is that they lost the ability to produce an, an phenolic off flavors. Um, Phenolic off flavors or puff flavors, for instance, the best known is 4VG, 4-vinyl guayacol, which adds the clove-like off flavor, which you really can still taste uh, in uh, wheat beers, for instance, Belgian wheat beers or the, the German Weissen beers. Um, so this is often not wanted in most of the other, other beer styles. And it seems that all the brewing yeast, or most all of them except the ones used for this uh, wheat beers and Weissen beers lost this uh, phenotype. Um, and if you then look to the puff characteristics of all the other yeast, wine yeast, but also other yeast, uh, they all still retained it. Um, so it seems that indeed the brewing yeast was really domesticated for brewing beers, for the use in uh, the brewery. So if I may, I want to I add one more thing to this. Um, is that if one of the main differences between the beer and the wine yeast uh, or the beer and wine production process in general is is um, uh, the way the way the way that, that that the process is being done. Beer is is being produced continuously, so the yeasts are continuously present in this beer medium, and people used to and are are, are still serially repitching their yeast, so they're continuously growing in beer wort. While for wine, wine production is seasonal, so after uh, the wine is being produced, the yeast must go back to nature and and, and be able to survive also outside this wine environment. And this is this is very well reflected in the in the genomes and the phenotypes of the yeast as well, because the beer yeast are really very very specifically adapted to this beer environment, while uh, and, and and cannot really survive on the outside. They're very poor in surviving sort of natural stressors and that kind of stuff. But but the wine yeast are more robust. They can uh, you, you you can you can leave them in the vineyard over winter and they will survive. Um, and, and the way that the analogy that we often use is that beer yeasts are then a bit more like dogs who really need the company of, of humans, while wine yeasts are a bit more like cats. You can sort of drop them in the wild, and I'm pretty sure they will be able to survive. Um, so this, this, I think, is a good analogy to, to see the difference uh, between the beer and the wine yeast. Breeding superior variants is an area of focus in your lab. Tell us how that works. While you don't have to wait 15 years like a barley breeder, there must be a unique set of challenges. Uh, so yes, indeed. So breeding yeast uh, is challenging for a couple of reasons. So first of all, um, yeast cells are very small. Uh, you know, you can't really see them uh, with the naked eye. So you need special equipment to start breeding different yeasts with each other. Whereas, of course, when you work, for instance, with cows or plants, you just take two plants or a cow and a bull, put them together, and uh, well, you see them actually mating. So in that sense, you need special equipment, and that's why I would say we have. Uh, well, we're not doing it already for thousands of years, and that yeast breeding is something very uh, recent. Um, on the other hand, uh, so breeding yeasts, um, the other challenge is that um, you need to exploit their sexual life cycle. So uh, yeast is very special in that. So it can reproduce itself uh, by clonal budding, it's called, um, or it can form spores, and you need these formation of spores to be able to cross different spores of different uh, yeast, uh, which often is very tricky for a lot of industrial yeast, but we optimize the protocols so we can actually now do this in our lab uh, with a high efficiency. Um, so, and then it's indeed the case of selecting uh, two in interesting parental strains. For instance, if you want to uh, have a 
a high alcohol beer with a lot of aroma, well, if you if you don't have the best strain already out there, we'll select a very aromatic strain, cross it with a very robust strain that can produce a lot of alcohol, and then hope that we have segregants um, that combine these characteristics of both parental strains. Um, and then to come back to your remark that indeed it doesn't take as long as for plant breeding, indeed the sexual cycle of yeast is only a couple of, uh, well, not sexual, but it can reproduce itself in a couple of hours, whereas indeed for plants it takes weeks and years to, to get this going. And one additional advantage that I want to add for yeast is that you can, that you can literally make like a couple of million uh, new hybrids in a small tube. So, so the scale at which you can do breeding is, is much, much bigger. And of course, I mean, power is in the numbers. So if you can make more hybrids, you have a bigger chance of getting, getting superior ones. So there are two things that, that yeast have as, as, as going um, in terms of breeding, but there are also a few down, more, more technical downsides, I would say. Definitely need more robots too, right? Yeah, that is true, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, well, is it safe to assume you guys have seen the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Uh, I've seen it, but it's, it's it's been a decade, I think. So sure, sure. Well, I, I can't resist the opportunity to talk about the liger, which is pretty much my favorite animal. Uh, tell us about your work related to crossing species borders to make the li- the ligers and zonkeys of of yeast. So yeah, it's, it all started off when we wanted to make new lager yeasts. Um, so lager beer, which is accounts for ninety percent of the worldwide beer production, um, is basically fermented with a different uh, yeast species than, than ale beers. So ale beers are produced with Saccharomyces cerevisiae, whereas uh, lager beers are produced with Saccharomyces pastorianus. Um, and it, the interesting about this yeast is actually that it is what we call interspecific hybrid, like the lagers, uh, meaning that is the result of crossing two different species. So it is, on one hand, uh, the ale yeast Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which we all use to produce our ale beers, and on the other hand, a uh, cold, cold tolerant uh, contaminant called Saccharomyces ebayanus. And um, so the interesting is, so Saccharomyces pastorianus is this uh, type of interspecific hybrid, but um, if you look into the genome of the lager yeast used across the world, um, they're all very similar. So there basically are only two archetypes, they're called Sass and Froberg. Um, and within those groups, diversity is very limited. So what we try to do in our lab is to recreate these, these events, Let's try to cross different yeast species. So not humans with humans, let's say, but on a genetic level, what we're doing in our lab is basically crossing humans with chickens. Uh, so we cross different cervices strains with interesting properties with different, uh, well, with other species like Saccharomyces ebayanus, Saccharomyces micata, and so on and so forth. So we try to combine characteristics from two different species in one uh, organism. Very cool. And with all this work that you do, you know, I think screening is, is really sort of going to always be your, your bottleneck, even with robots. Uh, talk about the lab on chip technology and, and how you're using that. So, yeah, so we already talked about the robot. So uh, what we could have done, what we're doing now is screening hundreds to thousands in parallel uh, on plates, 96L plates in small fermentations. But indeed, if you cross two different strains, for instance, you get a million of offsprings. You can't do this for all of these offsprings. So we were looking to a way to miniaturize uh, our uh, assays and to, to increase the, 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 the 
the throughput of our screenings. And for that, we started collaborating with a uh, with a company who is next door who uh, basically develops microchips. And uh, we started to make a uh, what we call a brewery on a chip. So um, what we can do there is encapsulate single cells, uh, yeast cells, in micro droplets. And we fill them with wort or other media. We have them grow. And then the, the idea is that we, in the end, with enzymatic assays, can screen uh, different metabolites they form. For instance, which sugars they use during the growth in these small, uh, small droplets. Um, and then we designed a sorter, which allows us to, to basically select the, the, the top few uh, out of these millions of cells uh, with these enzymatic assays. Then. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about your new book. What can you tell us about it? So um, we started making a book about Belgian beer. And, and the main reason was that we have a huge diversity in Belgian beer. So we have all these different beer styles, different beers. We have more than uh, 1,000 to 2,000 different beers in our small country being made. And we wanted to have like an objective view on the diversity of Belgian beers. And for that, we selected a set of 200 50 different beers coming from all the different Belgian beer styles and uh, did a whole chemical and sensorial analysis on them. What we did is we measured uh, more than 250 phenotypes of all the different beers and then also, of course, had them taste by a trained panel. And we combined all these data in a book. So um, in a way, what we made is a roadmap or uh, yeah, a roadmap, I would call it, uh, of the Belgian beers. So uh, you can see uh, where uh, a particular beer of interest uh, is positioned among the old, all the different beers, uh, what beers are similar or not. Um, and if you like a beer, you can also see uh, what basically characterizes this beer, uh, what is very typical for this beer chemically, but also sensorial. Um, so we hope that, that, that people will use it as a tool to basically discover Belgian beer or, or just beer diversity in, in general. Or even, for instance, for home brewers, it's very interesting if they want to make or, or, uh, a beer very close to a particular known beer, they can look, okay, which parameters do, you, do I need to go for uh, in my beer? So if I may, John, uh, I want to add one more thing about the beer book. Please do. So and, and this, is, this is maybe the only new thing that, that we can tell during this talk is that we, um, so we have now this big data uh, on, on uh, a lot of beers, a lot of chemical data, a lot of sensorial data. But one huge thing that, that's always missing in, uh, in, in beer research in general is the link between the two, like the link between the chemical composition of a beer and the way that it's sensorially perceived. Uh, so what we're doing now using, uh, using, using machine learning techniques is uh, we're, trying to link, we're trying to link the two. So actually develop sort of an electronic nose to predict how a certain beer is, is going to be perceived. And the output that we hope to get from this is, is um, for example, that, that we could do uh, recipe development and predict how the beer in the end would actually uh, would actually taste. So that, that that's one of the things that we're still uh, that that's one of the follow ups that we have on the on the on the beer book or on the data that we gathered for the beer book. That was Sten Mertens and Jan Stansels here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you'd like to see Sten's presentation from the 2018 Eastern Technical Conference, head on over to the District Presentations Archive or type Yeast of Tomorrow into the industry's best search bar at mbaa.com. And if you'd like to pick up a copy of Belgian Beer Tested and Tasted, head on over to the Master Brewers Bookstore. 
Check the show notes for a direct link. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Yeah.